Good morning. This is the Daily Signal podcast interview for Monday, July 10th. I'm Tyler O'Neill. I sat down with Liz Morrow, who's the Solicitor General of Louisiana, who's running for Attorney General in that state, and she is co-counsel on a very important case called Missouri v. Biden. She broke down exactly how this case works out. And what she and the others are alleging is that Biden's administration violated the First Amendment by coercing big tech to silence Americans. And it's really shocking the documents that she's revealed that have been shown in this case and the way that the Biden administration is defending itself. They're essentially not denying silencing American speech. Instead, they're saying that it makes sense because they're fighting misinformation and disinformation. So there was a really big ruling on this case on July 4th, the most fitting of days, where the judge said the government cannot be coercing big tech to silence Americans. And yet it was it was narrowly written. And it's interesting, the Biden administration has said this ruling was overbroad. But here, I should not explain everything. I had Liz Morrill on to talk about it. Listen to her, break it down. It's a truly shocking case. And we'll be right back with my interview with her right after this. Looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues from America's outpost here in Washington? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. You'll get top conservative research, a rundown of important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online, and hot takes from our experts. Sign up at heritage.org agenda or at the link in the show notes. This is Tyler O'Neill. I'm managing editor at The Daily Signal. I'm joined by Liz Morrow, who is the Solicitor General of Louisiana, and she's also running for attorney general. She is co-counsel in a very important case, Missouri v. Biden, holding the Biden administration accountable for pressuring big tech to silence Americans. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks. It's great to be with you. So, Liz, if you could just go over just briefly the case, the nature of it. I think it's a it's a very interesting um, story, obviously, and also, you know, it's it's not. I think there are a lot of potential mis misunderstandings. So, if you could clear that up. Yeah, I think they're intentionally driven. Mis- I mean, the, to to create misunderstandings about our case, but you know, it started out with a. A, a relatively small body of evidence that indicated that the government was colluding with big tech to uh, censor people's speech. Um, I think what we obtained and were a little surprised at the beginning of the case was preliminary discovery, which allowed us to produce and obtain from the government and from the big tech companies a lot more documents. So just at the preliminary injunction stage, we ended up with 20,000 emails, documents showing that this was a much, much more expansive enterprise than I think we could have anticipated, that it it goes through multiple government agencies, including CISA, um, the CDC, the FBI, even the Census Bureau was involved, but it, it started up at the White House. Wow. And we've seen, you know, as, as your pleadings say, 
almost exclusively conservative ideas being censored here, uh, talking about the COVID-19 pandemic and opposing some of the restrictions there, talking about the 2020 election. Can you give us just a bird's eye view of what was going on? And then I, I remember seeing Facebook admitting that it suppressed often true content um, about COVID vaccines. Well, and it's not just, it wasn't just Facebook that admitted it. The government admitted it. The government and these do, what these documents show uh, exceedingly clearly is that the government was taking down speech that it would that it believed would contribute to vaccine hesitancy. Um, it took down speech about the elections. It took down speech about Hunter Biden's laptop. It took down memes about the first lady. So there's there was there's even some discussion in some of the emails from people at say Facebook. Um, saying, you know, they were concerned because it didn't violate their community standards and the White House was directing them to take it down anyway. And, you know, when it came to the vaccines specifically, there's emails from Anthony Fauci saying that they want them to take down anything that would contribute to vaccine hesitancy, which, you know, would have affected, would, that would have that would have included the true story about my son who had myocarditis from the Pfizer vaccine and spent a week in ICU. Ugh. So I think one of the big things that surprised me, you know, we got this historic ruling on July 4th that you spoke with me about earlier this week, uh, where the judge ordered the government to stop pressuring big tech. And I mean, this is this isn't, you know, them telling them they can't speak. This isn't them telling them they can't uh, notify of potential terrorist threats or anything like that. But we saw this great ruling very clear, very tailored. And then you had the New York Times come out with a story with misinformation experts complaining about it. And where do you see this media bias coming from? And why doesn't the left-leaning media seem to celebrate a victory for free speech? Look, that's an excellent question. And as someone who was a journalist at one time before I went to law school, you know, I, it still baffles me to see the mainstream press buying into this massive effort to create a misinformation or disinformation censorship complex. It is so contrary to the First Amendment to see these media companies not only buying into it, but perpetuating it and perpetuating this narrative that questions the value of freedom of speech. I mean, that's what we are, what I'm seeing now is they're not defending what they did they well they're not they're not defending that they violated the first amendment they are saying they are essentially attacking the first amendment because they admit what they've done they just say that they think it's the right thing to do and and so they they avoid the entire question of whether they're legally able to do it because they are pivoting to a discussion about saying, well, it's the right thing to do. Like people, we need to protect people from themselves and from this misinformation they might receive because they might not be able to discern whether it's true or not true. You know, Tyler, one of the most concerning statements that we saw was in an email from the director of CISA, who basically said that we can't allow people to decide their own facts, that it would be dangerous yeah. to let people decide their own facts. Well, that's the whole foundation for the First Amendment. Yeah. And to see, you know, like 
like you're saying a lot of, have you seen positive coverage of this from the mainstream press where they're talking about, you know, because I, I wouldn't have believed that the New York Times would have a story uh, right after a judge is saying this is Orwellian suppression of the truth, that the New York Times would be on the side of the Orwellian suppression. And it shocks me. It really does. I, I haven't seen the mainstream press really start to address the fact that this is an assault on the First Amendment, which includes the freedom of the press. So I don't know where they think this would end. I mean, it, once you create a massive government edifice, an entire government process that permits censoring speech and co-ops the, the, these large companies and corporate authority through coercion by the federal government, you've tossed the First Amendment out. And I don't know why they think that they would be able to control this weaponization of the government. It's just as dangerous for them as it is to conservatives who are now being attacked. And on that issue of conservatives being attacked, uh, one of the major organizations I constantly follow and wrote a book about, the Southern Poverty Law Center, um, puts conservatives on a map with chapters of the KKK, you know, with neo-Nazis, and is engaged in kind of this information warfare that reminds me a lot of this misinformation attack. Has the SPLC at all reached out to you uh, to celebrate this free speech victory? <laughs> have, have they spoken out uh, in favor of the other side? Uh, have you heard anything from them on this? No, I haven't heard anything from them. I did an interview with NewsHour. They ran that interview and I think they had me and then they had a, a professor from the University of Chicago Law School. And, it, you know, I mean, I remember just yesterday when I did this interview that the the questions and this is I see this repeatedly. This happened to me a couple of weeks ago when I testified in Congress where I continue to get these questions. And, and the question is, well, we can talk about these things, but should we? And. You know, I mean, the answer, my answer to that is, yes, we should. I mean, you know, one of the questions, the pointed questions was, there are people who are election deniers, you know, and that's the, 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 the so they keep saying that the election was stolen and that's been demonstrably proven to be false. Should they be able to talk about that? You know, the answer to that is yes. The First Amendment protects the ability to talk about that. There are people who deny that the moon landing occurred. They think that it was created in a Hollywood studio they actually get to talk about that. Like the government does not get to tell them that they aren't able to discuss that, even if the rest of us or anybody thinks that that it's it's just, you know, something that isn't accurate. But people get to talk about inaccurate things. And sometimes those things turn out to be accurate, which is proving to be true, I think, with a lot of discussions about the vaccine. There was a lot of discussion early on about, adverse effects of the different vaccines and specific vaccines having specific effects like the J&J &J vaccine. They've pulled it from the market. Yeah. So, you know, the myocarditis issue actually proven to be a real problem. And so now they have cautions and, and they're being a lot more cautious about it with young adult males. But 
the government hasn't really changed its tune. And now they're basically saying that they weren't actually mandating anybody to do anything and that it was always everybody's choice. I mean, talk about a slippery narrative. Yeah. Well, I also want to hear if, you know, any of these organizations that are, you know, on the left, these public interest groups that used to stand for the First Amendment and for many noble causes like uh, the ACLU, have they reached out to work with you on this at all? And then has someone like the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, have they reached out to you? I mean, they're not on the left, um, but they're a very free speech oriented group. No, I mean, I think that, you know, I think that everybody has underestimated the importance of this case. And so we are still in the preliminary stages. This was a preliminary injunction. So, you know, it's possible that it was flying under the radar for a lot of these groups. I think this opinion has, you know, created a pretty big splash. There's been a lot of coverage of it. I I do. It will absolutely be moving through the Fifth Circuit um, very quickly. They've the the government has already filed for a stay with the district court judge who I'm confident will deny it and they'll move on to the Fifth Circuit. They are predictably claiming that it is overbroad and they can't decide, you know, they can't discern based on the the way the injunction's written who they can talk to and who they can't. But the the injunction does not prohibit government from speaking. It simply prohibits them fundamentally from coercing the big tech companies into carrying out their censorship enterprise, which they shouldn't have been doing anyway. Yeah. Well, have you seen um, media outlets claiming that this is overbroad or is that just the Biden response? Well, I think the media outlets are promoting speakers who are saying that it's overbroad. So you know, I I haven't actually seen any opinion writer, but I mean, it's pretty early on. I just haven't seen a column yet that takes it and says, and that doesn't mean they aren't out there. I've seen a lot of coverage. I've seen a lot of, you know, people on Twitter and stuff saying that they think it's overbroad. But, you know, we had 85 pages of fact finding by the judge that was very specific about what each agency was doing, who they were doing it with and what they were doing in terms of coercing and pressuring the tech companies all the way up through and including the White House. Yeah. And are there a few of those really shocking pressure points that you would highlight? I mean, you you quoted the woman from the administration saying that Americans shouldn't be able to select their own facts. Um, and I mean, I saw the one that, that stood out to me was that Facebook admission Um on on vaccine hesitancy, were there any others that really stood out to you that you would uh, emphasize? Well, the judge goes to some, you know, he 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 painstakingly illustrates how the government was using threats of um, antitrust actions brought by the Department of Justice or movements to try and take away their Section two hundred and thirty immunity. Um, so these were overt coercion. So what you would see is a behind the scenes discussion that was taking place, followed by a public um, press conference where Jen Psaki or somebody, you know, in the White House, usually it was Jen Psaki, were attaching those threats right after they had had a conversation with the tech companies about some information that they wanted taken down. And so they actually created an entire pipeline to facilitate a more 
quick action by the um a quick you know quicker action by the tech companies and that put this whole thing on steroids because now you had multiple agencies that were sending and flagging information and they were either downgrading it so it couldn't be distributed heavily um, or they were flagging it and taking it down. And then they were deplatforming people simply because they disagreed with their speech, like Tucker Carlson, for example. You know, it, certain people who they had flagged as giving out disinformation or misinformation relative to the vaccines, but it tied back to vaccine hesitancy, not to whether it was true or not. And it was generally their opinion, which is also, you know, protected by the First Amendment. So, they acknowledged they were targeting speech that they knew to be protected. It's really egregious. Yeah, just just getting to this point in our society where one side thinks it's acceptable to do this kind of thing to the other side. And, you know, what scares me partially about it is that, you know, this is, as you were saying, this is such an abuse of government power that it almost broadens the the horizon of conceivable abuse that people on the other side could do it too like this conservatives oh, yeah. shouldn't be the only ones who are shocked and appalled by this well and you know if you know anything i mean every the first amendment actually protects minority speech it protects the minority opinion not the majority opinion so that's what it's always stood for is being able to protect dissenting opinions, not the, you don't need to protect the majority opinion. You need to protect the dissenting opinion. That's who's going to be that. That's who will be targeted. Um, I think, you know, what really, really concerns me is seeing this movement toward demonizing the first amendment itself. That's what I see happening in a more sort of at a hundred thousand feet and that's what I see the government and a lot of the people on the left doing is questioning whether the First Amendment is appropriate, that if it does protect what they call misinformation or disinformation, then, you know, maybe it shouldn't. And I keep going back to the question of who are we allowing? We're going to allow government to decide what's information that we should acquire. I mean, that's a that is a just fundamentally contrary to the entire structure of our democracy. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it really is. It's an existential threat to the Republic as it's created now. Well, and to the, to the notion that the people have rights independent from the government. Right. That, that those rights are actually prior to and decisive of what the government can do. Right, that they are fundamental and that they are inherent in us and that we gave power to, we gave this power to the government, that they only have the power that we gave to it, that the federal government itself is a, is a is, is limited power, only that power that we gave to it through the Constitution. And they are questioning the entire structure of that. Hmm. That's what this attack on the First Amendment does. Who will decide? what's misinformation and disinformation i mean this whole enterprise that they were that they had created answers that question it says the government will decide and it will be the government that is in power that will decide what you get to hear and what you get to think you asked me about 
one of one of the things that I would flag and that really shocked me. It was the whole creation of a category at CISA called cognitive infrastructure. Yeah. Cognitive infrastructure, that's what we think. I mean, that's, you know, so the government decided that it could create a category of critical infrastructure that it was empowered and obligated to protect called cognitive infrastructure, what people think. They're giving themselves the power to decide the facts for us. And well, that's going to limit what we can hear and think, see and think. That term, the reason it shocks you so much, is that because, and I mean, I'm not saying it shouldn't shock you. I'm just trying to break it down because I just hear cognitive infrastructure and I'm like, okay, well, Americans, you know, maybe our national security, if we're all... We all need minds, right, to think. But what what does that mean in terms of the government deciding what cognitive infrastructure is, and why is that? Right. This terrifying. So, you know, if we put it, if we do actually put it back into the structure of the First Amendment, then you know, you could, if it's content oriented regulation, if it's content oriented um, censorship, which is what this is then it, it would have to meet strict scrutiny. Right. And, and so it has to be very narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling governmental purpose. What they've done isn't narrowly tailored at all. In fact, it's as broad as they could get it because they openly acknowledged they were taking down protected speech. And, and so you can see how quickly this devolves into a censorship enterprise by looking at exactly what they've done. I mean, well, it's a by, study in how quickly we can devolve into a government that now exercises autocratic power over us by dictating the speech that we're able to obtain through these corporate platforms and these tech platforms. Why that wouldn't then extend to the New York Times, I don't know. There is no limiting principle on this idea. And by cognitive infrastructure, that means that the way that all Americans think right. is pertinent to the government's integrity, yeah. essentially. Is, yeah. And so if we take the example um, from uh, the interview that I did where she asked me about the, the election being stolen, um, you know, there's, there's this, this idea, this narrative out there that it is false that it's not correct to say that the election was stolen. You know, people have different reasons for thinking that the election was stolen. They may say that because there were lawsuits over a lot of state laws that inhibited the enact the, 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 those laws from taking effect during COVID. They may say that because they believe that there was cheating in their state or in another state. They may say that for a variety of reasons, but they actually do have a legal, you know, protected right under the First Amendment to have that conversation and to talk about it and to think that. Whether you agree with them or not is your decision. Whether you want to engage in that discussion is your decision. But the government doesn't get to decide whether you get to have that conversation or hear that conversation from somebody else. And, and that's what's so scary about this structure. And when you see the mainstream press saying, so you think you, I mean, and the, it's the way they ask the question, right? You think people ought to be able to talk about the election being stolen? Yeah, <laughs> actually I did. I think more speech is the solution to the problem. 
sunlight and more speech is the solution. If you think that's a problem, then talking about it is the solution, not having the government censor what we can talk about. And I mean, to be clear, you think that people should be able to say if they think Trump was an illegitimate president, as I heard so many times on the left, you know, it's it's funny when when they were questioning the election of 2016. Right. We the right didn't go after them and try to ban them from social media and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, now the shoes on the other foot. You know, it it, it just it just points out that. You know, there is no this is really about content moderation and and an attempt to sort of place the power in the hands of government to determine content moderation. And it's just a it's a very, very bad path that we're on. Um, It does put the First Amendment directly in the crosshairs because it is demonizing the First Amendment itself, not just the speech that they're targeting. Yeah. And to see the media support it in any facet is just that that's just you know unbelievable and i mean if history history sort of tells us i mean we've seen this happen in history i don't know why we wouldn't look at what's happened in other fascist countries where um the mainstream narrative was the government was able to drive what people could see and hear and think and it led to disastrous murderous consequences so it's a it's just a terrible path to be on. Uh, and I, I think it's one that our founders rejected. It, it drove a revolution that drove a declaration, you know, the Declaration of Independence that drove the revolution, that drove the Constitution. And now here we are um, seeing a judge who is attempting to shine daylight and and illustrate through 80 pages of fact finding what the government was doing and he's being attacked so just to be clear you said like we saw in other fascist countries do you think that this is a fascist yeah threat to our constitution absolutely i do i do i, I think it is it is a threat that leads to fascism and you know once you and and we saw that happen in uh in nazi germany where the government was able to take control of corporations and over the press. We've seen it in Cuba. We've seen it in Soviet Russia. I mean, you can see it right now in China. I mean, it's not like you have to look to the past to see what happens when the government can control the entire press and and all avenues of public discourse. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Liz. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? No, I just think it's good that we're talking about it. I think we ought to keep talking about it. And I think we ought to encourage anybody who believes in the First Amendment to join this fight and to not view this as a partisan issue. It's not a partisan issue. It shouldn't be viewed as a partisan issue. It is a threat to anybody, to every every citizen of this country, because it threatens the First Amendment. And and I, I would like to, you know, continue to sort of discuss it and try to see if people will understand and and join us and 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 you know we got to continue to educate people about why the First Amendment matters. Otherwise, we're going to create a generation that doesn't care about it, doesn't value it, and is going to throw it up, throw it out. You know, it's going to be relegated to the trash bin of history, and I don't know where we go from there. Yeah, that's a very sobering thought that. 
such a thing could happen. Yeah. One generation, one generation to lose the Republic. Well, thank you again so much, Liz. And where can people follow you? Uh, well, I, you know, I work with the attorney general now. I'm running for attorney general. And my website is www.liz4la.com. Um, so liz4la.com. Great. Thanks so much again for joining us. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks for having me. That was Liz Morrow, Solicitor General of Louisiana, talking with me, Tyler O'Neill. If you liked what you heard here, please feel free to leave us a five-star rating and review. We read all your feedback, but make sure to stay tuned because at 5 p.m. today, we're going to come around with the top news of the day, a roundup that gives you everything you need to know about what's happening in the headlines on your commute back home. So stay tuned, leave us a review, and be sure to tune in at 5 for our top news edition. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Samantha Asheris. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.